Well, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being with us. Hope that you were able to uh, sit in your sin this week. Did you do that? Turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 3. That's where we're going to be uh, today. Back actually uh, where we were, um, we have to look back at the same passage. Um, Last week we looked at the bad news, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of what we were made for. We were made to uh, share in God's glory. We're made to reflect God's glory, and of course, sin mars that glory. Um, The wages of sin in chapter 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death, that the right and just penalty for sin uh, is death, which tells us, the penalty tells us uh, the nature of the crime, right? (laughs) That it's serious. And that we don't just commit sins, but we live with the condition of sin. The scripture tells us, told us last week, that we live under the power of sin. Remember, sin is waiting at the door, it is crouching, and it wants to take control of you. That's what sin does, is it controls us. We don't just commit sins um, and then live in the condition of sin. We believe that the scripture tells us that because we have the condition of sin, we will commit sins. And it's insidious, right? It's not something that we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get out of. That sin um, has all of us. And it's not just our actions. You can't just clean up the outside. But it's our attitudes. It's from within. And so today, after having considered the bad news last week, we need to consider the good news, right? So let me pray, and then we're going to be in Romans 3. Father, I pray that this truth of your good news, really great news, would take root in us. It wouldn't just be something that we know with our minds, but it would be something that we live out of our heart, that our lives would be transformed by this truth that we would be uh, good news livers and good news bringers, that it would alter the ways that we approach relationships and life to know what a great thing you have not just done for us but given us, God. And so I pray that your word would go forth in the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, to transform us, to make us a little bit more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name. Amen. So Romans 3, starting in verse 21, says this, but now, apart from the law of from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now, this it's really interesting. In just a few, we're only going to look at five verses, and you're going to see righteousness. You're going to see a bunch of words repeated and repeated and repeated. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. They were testifying. The Old Testament testifies to the righteousness of God. This righteousness, and what is righteousness? It's our right standing with God. 
This righteousness is given through faith. And not just faith in anything or anyone, but through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Remember, this is the argument that Paul is laying out because he's writing to a church that is filled with Jews and Gentiles. And he's basically saying, look, guys, there's no difference between you. He's already told us, and he's saying again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but all are justified freely. And what is it to be justified? What is it to be justified? Friends, justification is what you and I are doing every day. We're trying to justify our existence. We're trying to justify why we're here. And so we're looking at all kinds of things. Basically, to be justified is to have approval. And every day we're looking for approval. Am I a good friend? Am I a good mom? Am I a good wife? Am I a good coworker? Am I a good boss? We're looking for justification. And he says here that all are justified freely. Your approval has been given to you. My approval has been given to me by his grace through the redemption, the purchase price that Jesus pays, right? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. You looked at that in your study this week. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, or the word there could be a propitiation. It's a big word for God presented Christ to take on the wrath of God upon himself that you deserve, that I deserve. That punishment was taken on Christ through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Do you see this over and over? That we believe, that we receive. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness his holiness, his perfection. Because in his forbearance or his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Those Abraham, Isaac, those who were received and justified and made right with God and saved in the Old Testament, it was they were saved by the, the coming promise, the hope and the coming promise of the shed blood of Christ. God did, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished because he knew he was going to send his son. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. And this is awesome about our God. So as to be just, to be a God of justice, he wasn't going to just simply overlook sin. So as to be just, but also the one who justifies. The one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now there is so much packed in these five little verses, right? But I'm just going to dial down deep into verse 25. It says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. 
this theme of the shed blood runs all the way through the scripture. You can go all the way back to Genesis and you see blood being shed. You see sacrifices being made. Now we read this and we just kind of go, ah, yeah. But for the original reader, when they read this line, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, they had a picture that came to mind. They had a picture of that day of atonement that's laid out for us in the Old Testament. But they knew, every good Jew knew that once a year, there was the day of atonement. Of course, throughout the year, Sacrifices were offered regularly by many priests, sacrifices of goats and pigeons and grain and lambs and all different kinds of sacrifices to make things right. But on one day, every year, on the Day of Atonement, there was one sin offering that was made to cover all of the sin offerings. On that day, a goat was sacrificed on behalf of all the people, on behalf of all of Israel, and the high priest was the one who offered this sacrifice. He was the priest of all priests. He wore really fancy embroidered garments, but on the Day of Atonement, he took off his fancy garment, and he put on a simple white robe that would be the robe of any priest, and he came before the people and two goats were brought to him. They had been examined. They had been found to be without blemish. And they were brought to the high priest. One of them was chosen for death. And then the high priest, as a representative of all people, laid his hands on that one goat that had been offered for death and he would confess publicly, he would confess the sins of all the people. And he would symbolically, by placing his hands on that goat, he was symbolically transferring the condition of the people to the animal. That it would stand in their place. If you were in that crowd on that day, and you heard the sins being confessed, it would not just be empty ritual for you. You would know that your sins were being placed on that animal. And then you would see the high priest would take a knife and he would slit the throat of that goat and the blood would pour out and be captured into a basin and then he would take that basin of blood and he would take it into the Holy of Holies. You see, that blood, that goat was being offered as a substitute because the penalty for sin was death and something had to die. And that high priest would carry that basin into the, what was known as the Holy of Holies and it was a room in the temple that was separated out, it was separated by a giant, really, really thick curtain. And no one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and even then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they say that the high priest would have a rope 
tied around his ankle in case he fell down in the presence of God unless he got he was slain by the presence of God because in the Holy of Holies was the physical present manifestation of the presence of God. And if he was slain by that presence of God, then they could pull him out because no one could go in. And no one would have wanted to go in, right? So in that room, in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold box, and on the top was a pure gold lid, if you will, that was called the mercy seat. And on each end of the box were cherubim, gold-crafted angels, if you will, that, that represented, remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were sent out of the Garden of Eden, and God sent cherubim to guard the tree of life and to guard that place that they could not come back into that place. And what was, remember, what was the Garden of Eden? It was the first temple. It was the dwelling place of God. But man and woman, not that God did not love them, but they could not go back in because of sin. And the high priest would take the blood in that basin and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on God's mercy. And you can just imagine that lid, that mercy seat, just covered over, crusted with blood that had been sprinkled on it year after year after year after year after year. And then the high priest would exit and he would go to the living goat and he would place his hands on the living goat and he was going to give a physical picture to those standing and waiting of what had happened inside the holy of holies. And again, he would lay his hands on that goat and he would confess the sins of the people. And then they would take that goat and they would take it out into the wilderness and they would set it free, send it away, never to return again as a symbol of what had happened to their sins. That their sins had been remembered, put on this goat, but then sent away. God had remembered but covered their sin and then everybody would go home rejoicing right because their sins had been taken care of right but it was in a limited way and that's the problem here that's the problem is that this annual sacrifice this annual going into the holy of holies uh, was limited Sin was remembered and it was temporarily covered. But the penalty was not paid in full. The high priest would have to come back. You would have to come back. Throughout the year, you'd have to keep coming back with your offerings. And then again, this, this day of atonement, the offering would have to be repeated. Because here's the problem with this offering. 
The blood of an animal could never substitute for the human blood of one carrying the image of God. The other limitation is the animal, the goat, was a victim, not a willing sacrifice, right? Not giving themselves up in love. One commentator put it this way, and I thought this was a great insight. They noted, they said, there was no chair in the Holy of Holies because the priests never sat down after sprinkling the blood. Sin was temporarily covered, but sin was not put away. The sacrifice would have to be repeated. It's basically exactly what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. says, in those sacrifices... There is a remembrance of sin every year, but it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, could remove that condition of sin. Every priest stands daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Jesus... But then Jesus, and here's my concern, friends. What I'm about to share, what we're looking at, what we're talking about is at the very core of our faith. And my fear is that we have reduced Christianity to some good things, but not the ultimate thing. That we have reduced Christianity to helping us become better parents, to helping us become better friends, to helping us have better marriages, to helping us be better at our finances. And again, all those things are good and all those things are important, but they are not the ultimate thing. We do not come to Christianity only to have a better marriage. We do not come to Christianity only to have better finances. We do not come to Christianity to have a better community. We don't come to show up once a week and sing songs because it makes us happy. We come because the God of the universe came to us and his name is Jesus. We come to Christianity because we have found it to be the only way. Because we have found him to be the only way. Right? Jesus Jesus, he is the perfect high priest, and he is also the perfect unblemished sacrifice. The mystery of Jesus is just as confounding as the mystery of the Trinity. He can be known but not fully understood. Because it matters and it is absolutely significant that the God that we worship in Jesus Christ is like no other God. He is 100% God and he is 100% man. And you have to know him as this mystery. He is not just God coming to earth putting on a human suit. He is God becoming man. And remaining God. He is not 50% God and 50% man. 
He is 100% God and he is 100% man. And that absolutely matters as we talk about him as the unblemished, perfect sacrifice and perfect high priest. He is the just judge and he is the one who justifies. It is why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, remember John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, his whole purpose in life was to, to prepare the way for the Christ, for the Messiah. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he did not say, look, here comes the prophet. He's going to say some amazing things. Listen. Yes, he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He didn't say, oh, here comes the rabbi. He's an amazing teacher. We should take notes. Right? When John the Baptist pointed the way to Jesus, he declared one thing. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus did not just come to comfort you. Jesus did not just come to make you better. Jesus came to be the perfect, unblemished lamb who would take away the condition of sin, the penalty of sin, what you live under, what I live under, what I'm born into, to eradicate it. Jesus understood his destiny. He understood that he had come to die for sins. He said, I come to seek and to save the lost. I don't come to just seek and gather the lost. I don't come to just seek and comfort the lost. I don't come to just seek and teach the lost. I come to save the lost. And that's why understanding that he was coming to be what theologians would call our substitutionary atonement, to stand in our place. He understood that he must face death in his humanity he had to be the perfect human, live the perfect life, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb. And so as Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem, as Jesus is heading towards death and even telling his followers that he is going to have to die, and they don't get it because that's not what they were looking for, Jesus made a stop along the way. He stepped into a garden and he asked his buddies to go with him. I love this moment. And he said, hey, would you come in to this garden with me? And I need you to go over there. I need you to pray. And I'm going to step over here and I'm going to pray. I'm going to have a conversation with my father. And I love this. Because the conversation Jesus had with his father was this. Hey, if we could do it a different way, I'd sure like to do it a different way. 
such a model of prayer for us. We can be so honest with the Father. Jesus said this in that prayer. He said, if this cup can pass, if this cup could be removed. He might have said, I don't know, he might have said, I'm willing to die, but I'd sure like the cup to pass. Because what Jesus was referring to when he talked about the cup was Jesus understood and he knew that most of the time when the cup is referred to, it's referring to the wrath of God. And Jesus understood that when he was going to die, it wasn't going to be just death. It was going to be the outpouring of the wrath of God on him. That in his death, he would absorb the just punishment. And that was going to be way more painful far more disturbing than just a crucifixion. And Jesus said, if this cup could pass, if we could do it differently, but Father, your will, not mine. And of course we know that God the Father answered Jesus' prayer with a no. God said no. There is no other way. And in that moment, Jesus became a willing sacrifice. And not just a willing sacrifice, a joyfully willing sacrifice. Because we know that Jesus said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. And Hebrews tells us this, it says, For the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross. And I believe that when Jesus stepped out of that garden, his friends had fallen asleep, the Lord had said no, but Jesus was filled with joy because he knew that he was going to do the Father's will. And the Father's will was salvation for you and for me. The Father's will was that the wrath of God would be poured out on his son. And Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning the shame. What happened when sin entered the world? Remember, they were naked and unashamed before sin. And what that means is they were fully themselves. They were naked. They were fully themselves. And there was no shame. Can you imagine? And Jesus on the cross scorned the shame. He absorbed the shame. He absorbed the wrath. And then, Hebrews says, he sat down. No other high priest has ever sat down but our high priest, Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us that Jesus endured a horrific death, right? Crucifixion was a horrific death. It was the death of criminals. And when you died in crucifixion, you died 
of asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe any longer. It was a long, slow death out in the heat with the sun beating down on you, right? A nail or a spike through your wrist, through both wrists, through your ankles, and what you would have to do is just kind of push on those spikes to lift yourself up to get a breath. But here's what was different about Jesus's crucifixion. One, we've already talked about, he was absorbing the wrath of God. But the other thing that was different was that Jesus did not give in to death. Jesus didn't hit a point where he couldn't take a breath. Jesus willingly chose and submitted himself to death. The Bible says this, at noon, as Jesus hung on the cross with other criminals to his sides, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Jesus has been there for hours. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm. And I believe in this moment, and again, this is a mysterious thing. I do not understand it. I cannot explain it. I would not be able to tell you how this or what this is. But in this moment, there is this mysterious darkness and this mysterious separation of God the Son and God the Father. And again, I don't understand all of that in, the, in a triune God, but I believe it is in that moment that Jesus is separated in a way where he is absorbing the wrath of God, the penalty of our sin poured out upon him, where Paul says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin. In that moment, he didn't sin, he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. And then it says, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. No more repeated sacrifices. No more coming back again and again and again and again. Hebrews really handles all of this most beautifully. Says this, this sacrifice of Jesus is once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then Jesus called out with a loud voice, hard to have a loud voice if you're still trying to get your breath right. But Jesus is a willing sacrifice. Jesus is committing himself unto death. Death is not taking him. Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, Daddy, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. And then the Bible tells us this wonderful detail. This wonderful detail. It says this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At the moment of Christ's death, the curtain of the temple, that thick, thick curtain was torn from top to bottom. Who tore that curtain? God. 
because God wanted all to know there is no longer a separation. All are invited into the Holy of Holies. All are invited into the presence of God. And I love this detail too. It says, and when the centurion, the guard who was standing by Jesus' cross, said, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. You see, on the cross, Jesus does something that no one else could do. You see, we, we debate these things. Is the God of the Bible, is the God of Christianity, is he a just God? Is he a holy God? Or is he a loving God? How can he be both? How can he, how can he give judgment and still love? How can he love and judge? Is he a loving God? Is he a just God? Yes. Yes. And he puts it on display on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus satisfies the need for just judgment. And we know that need. We know the desire for justice. We look at poverty. We look at war. We look at genocide. We look at human trafficking. And we want justice. And God brings justice. There is no beauty without justice but he also brings love, right? Jesus satisfies the love of the Father on the cross. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Friends, are you doubting the love of God for you? Are you wondering, are you spending all of your days kind of spinning? The demonstration of God's love in the scripture points over and over. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. 1 John 4 says this, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. That is not love. His love absorbs the just judgment. Love becomes sin so that we might become righteousness, that we might have in us all of the righteousness of Christ. If you do a word study of blood in the New Testament, it's fascinating. Uh, It's all over. The blood of Christ is all over the New Testament. And this is what you'll find. I would love to read all these verses, but I'm just going to summarize it. This is what the New Testament tells us, that the blood of Jesus does for us. It redeems us. It is the purchase price of our salvation. The scripture says you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The blood of Christ forgives us. It says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The blood of Christ purifies us. The blood of Jesus, the scripture says, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Christ sets us free. Jesus died as a ransom to set them free from sin. The blood of Christ makes us holy. Jesus suffered to make the people holy through his blood. 
The blood of Christ transforms us into the righteousness of God. We have all the rights of Jesus. All that is in his nature is now in us by grace. The blood of Christ transforms us. Right. The blood of Christ brings peace. The scripture says you were once alienated from God, but through Jesus you were made right by his blood. The blood of Christ brings us near to God. And I want to end with this passage, Hebrews chapter 4. And I, want, I just want to sit for a minute. You can bow your heads. What will you do with Christ's death for you? Will you receive it? Will you trust in it? Will you let it transform you and free you? Will you let it draw you near to God himself? Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet Jesus did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want you to sit. We're just going to give you a minute. Would you receive his mercy? Would you receive his grace? God demonstrated his love for us in this, says Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, while we were still controlled by sin, Christ died for us. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you that through the blood of Christ, through his perfect unblemished life, his perfect death, and his perfect resurrection, we can draw near to you. And we do so today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.